We are continuing our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, entitled Life-Giving or Empty Promises. And I'm excited because today Dave Wurtzen begins our discussion by exposing something that has happened to you or could happen to you that is a reason to celebrate forever. What could be so good that it calls for eternal celebration? Brothers and sisters, whether we're excited about it or not, this is the most incredible, heartfelt, deep-seated joy in all the world. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Your sins have been totally taken care of. And you can go before God when you commit yourself to that precious death and you become God's child. And you go, God, but you don't know about my past. He says, oh, yes, I do. I know more about your past than you do. I know more about your present than you do. I know more about your future than you do. And that's why there was my son's death, and Calvary covers it all. That's great. But that's not all the gospel. That would be good news, but it would be false news if the next part wasn't true. We've got to lead one more thing to make it very, very true. It says here, and he was buried. Very important to recognize he was buried. There goes the swoon theory. You cannot believe the swoon theory that Christ was a good teacher. He kind of collapsed under the suffering and the agony of the Roman beating, and they put him on the cross, and he kind of fainted, and the soldier thought he was dead. They wound him in grave clothes, stuffed cotton in his mouth probably, put a cloth over his mouth, put him in a cave all night, and somehow this guy that was so weak got all the stuff out of his mouth, took the grave clothes away, pushed the stone out of the way, scared the Roman soldiers halfway to death, and went back to his disciples as a bleeding, broken man, and he inspired them to found the church. I'm being facetious, obviously, but that's basically, you can believe that if you want to. But the text doesn't say the only historical document that we have about the resurrection. And even Time Magazine, the scholars at Tübingen will say this in Germany. They'll say if you throw out the historical documents, you can say anything you want to. The historical documents say that he died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried. You know what that means? That he was dead, dead, dead. They put him in a tomb. And the life had gone completely out of him. And that's why your sins have been paid for, because the wages of sin is death, and he was buried, and that means that he died, and that means that the punishment was paid, and he was dead, dead, dead. And we could go through an experience like that right here in this building. We could have somebody right here in front of us who was dead, and we'll leave this church and instead of having a joyous wedding or a joyous time, we'll take them down to the plot and we'll put them down six feet. And that's one of the worst blows that you can ever have in life. And I don't share that just out of knowing, well, maybe it would be like that. Because we've been there many, many times with loved ones, with brothers and sisters in Christ, with unbelievers and everything. It's part of life. And Jesus has experienced. He has been put in the grave. And that certifies that the punishment has been paid, but it necessitates the next part of it, which is the joyous message of Easter. And he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. You see, if he wasn't buried, 
then he wasn't dead and you don't have a resurrection. And what we need for my mom is a resurrection. You see, life has gone right on. You see, I've lived long enough that I know you can lose your mom and you can cry about it, you can go through a funeral service and you can put her in the ground and she's gone. And for a long while, it doesn't do anything to you. You hardly even think about it, especially if you live a long way away from her. But then as you live a little bit longer, your memory starts to go back. And all of you that have lost loved ones know you get to that time of the year when it happened and tremendous remembrances take place and tremendous emotions come in. And it, this feeling is, you know, where are they? What happened to them? What are they doing? Will I see them again? And if you believe that the answer to that question is no, you never will, then you're going to begin to draw, withdraw from many people all around you because you're going to begin to say, one of the deepest relationships I ever had in life with my mom ended and it's gone forever. Why live? What's the use of having love? What's the use of getting close? Because it all ends. Christianity never talks like that. And Christianity doesn't say that we separate from the body, we go to live in never, never land, and out there in this ethereal, floating around spiritual atmosphere, we enter the great world of ideas forever and ever. Plato taught that. You're all sitting in imperfect chairs. But somewhere out there, there's a perfect idea of a chair. And someday, you will go out and join the nebulous nothingness of the ultimate world of ideas. That's what the Greeks believed, many of them. Many of them believed this was all there is, just material universe. And then many others believed that what you wanted to do is to get out of this body, which is the prison house of the soul, and be released to enter the great world of ideas. In fact, that's probably one of the ideas that Paul is counteracting in this chapter. You know what Paul teaches? Very different thing. He teaches that there was a creator one day that took his hands and out of dust and clay he formed a man. And he went, and the man began to live. And man's been generating people ever since. But there's a day when it's not, but it's, and I've been right there when someone goes, and that's it. And you can reach over and touch their eyes and they can't see anymore. You can shut them. And the spirit of life has gone away. And that's what we put into the grave. And that's exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. But on Easter morning, God the Father raised him to life from the dead. On the third day, he was raised. Passive tense, by, it's by the Father. That's the one. He was raised. Jesus came back to life, and his body was transformed, as the last part of this chapter explains. It was no longer a physical body, subject to disease and death, subject to suffering and death. It was a transformed body, but it was a genuine, authentic, living, eternal body. 
And that's what the resurrection means. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And Paul is thinking of scriptures like Psalm 16, where David wrote, he will not allow his Holy One to suffer decay. And Paul will argue in the, in the synagogue of Antioch, Peter will argue this. In the second Pentecost sermon, he'll argue, David who wrote that psalm was dead and buried and rotted. They're very graphic. So that promise, because you believe in the scriptures, his audience was Jewish, they believed in the scriptures, David did not fulfill that scripture, so he must be writing about a greater one. And Peter and Paul go on to declare, we have seen the greater one because he did die, he was buried, he was put in the grave, but the Holy One of God, God the Father, the Holy One, did not allow his servant to decay. And he came back to life again. And the chapter will later tell us in an exciting message that he's the first fruits of what all of you are going to be. You are not on the way to decaying. You are not on the way to losing it all. You're not on the way to death and dying and destruction in the end. It's just a shadow that's going to bring you into eternal reality because Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, how do we know that's all true? You say, well, Dave, I know that. I've heard that from the time I was a kid. How do I know it's true? Paul gives the answer in the next part of the text. Look what he says. He says, and that he appeared. You see, the gospel is not only that he died on the cross for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that his death was authentic, that he authentically rose again from the dead the third day according to the scripture, but the last part of the gospel is that he appeared. He appeared, first of all, it says he appeared to Peter. Isn't that great? We don't know exactly when that took place. Mark's gospel at the end insinuates, it says, and he appeared to Simon. So there's a corroborating evidence there at the end of Mark's gospel that Jesus did appear to Peter. But we don't, it's, it's cloaked in silence. We have Peter the denier, Peter the denier, and then suddenly Peter the denier becomes Peter the proclaimer. What made the difference? The Apostle Paul begins to give us the answer. He's saying that the resurrected Christ appeared to Peter. I can hardly wait to talk with Peter about how he felt when the Lord appeared to him and what the Lord did with him the first time he appeared to him. Because here was a man that was weeping close to total despair and Jesus comes alive from the grave and he appears to him and he restores him. And later on in the shores of Galilee, he appoints Peter as the first pastor teacher within the family of God. So he appeared to Peter. By the way, tradition tells us that Peter hung upside down and was crucified because he believed that that was true. He didn't write a story in Esquire about it like Elvis Presley people. He didn't write a multi-million dollar bestseller, brothers and sisters. He spent the rest of his life walking around by foot, traveling by ship, telling everybody that would ever listen to him, he's alive. Now your choice is that Peter either told the truth, or he was a total idiot, or he was a shyster, along with all the rest of them, like Jesus and Paul, they're all a bunch of shysters, or they told the truth. Those are the only choices. 
And in my own life, it's very hard for me to conceive that Peter, that rough-hoon, foul-mouthed Galilean fisherman, could be changed so radically and could, could devote his life and would swear from the depths of his soul in a Nemertine prison in Rome, he's alive. Nero, you can do anything you want to me. I'll never change my confession. He's alive. The next one, Peter. Then to the twelve. Look at that bunch. The twelve is a title for the apostles, the eleven, the disciples, I mean, the disciples. Think of that bunch. We've talked about it on Easter before. But here's 11 fellows hiding in the upper room, scared to death the authorities are going to come and, and crucify them, making other plans. I mean, a great bunch to found a movement that's going to literally shake the foundations of the world. And Jesus comes to them at night, comes among them, and eats with them. A week later, doubting Thomas wasn't there the first time. A week later, he appears again. This time, there he is, doubting Thomas. And the Lord Jesus stands among them and says, All right, Thomas, go ahead. Put your hand right into my side. Jesus holds out his hand. Thomas, go ahead. Take your hand. Put it right here in the scar in my hand. It's me. Thomas doesn't have to do either one of them. He just falls flat on his face. The climax of the Gospel of John, my Lord and my God. Now, brothers and sisters, you have a choice. You can believe Thomas told the truth. And we're going to go into that high school and we're going to tell the truth. We're going to go into those colleges and tell the truth. We're going to go into this whole world and tell the truth because we believe it. Or we're going to get out of it. We're going to say it's a bunch of baloney. It's just religion. Who cares? Those are the choices. But it will build your soul if you'll begin to think and to meditate on what Paul is saying. He appeared to the disciples. Then he appeared, it says, he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. Most of them were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Paul is writing about events that only happened 20 years before this. You see, we're not talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago in Paul's day. Paul says, listen, there's over 500 people who are eyewitnesses of what I'm telling you. And he says, if you don't believe me, go and check them out. There's a whole bunch of them still living, although some, a few, have fallen asleep. Some of them have, have died since this happened. That's incredible. My, my dad loves to say at a talk show, my dad was talking about the resurrection, and somehow they got off on this subject, and the guy said, you know, well, Jews never agree about anything. And my dad says, no, that's not true. That's really not a good statement to make. And, the, and the, the radio announcer says, oh, yes, it is. The radio announcer was a Jew himself. He says, Jews don't believe. My family gets together. We argue. We analyze. We debate. We always disagree with one another. My dad says, no, I know a time where they didn't disagree. Over 500 Jews observed something, and they all agreed about it. The radio announcer says, you've got to be kidding. That could never happen. He says, oh, yes, it did. What was the fact they all agreed on? Jesus rose again from the dead. Because this happened before Cornelius came into the church. So the 500 would be all Jewish people. Just about all Jewish. They would have been all Jewish and they all agreed. He, all, he rose again from the dead. You say, well, I don't believe what you say. That's fine. You have that right as an individual. I respect that right as an individual. But I challenge you, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, I challenge you, what is your evidence? Who are your witnesses? If you follow Carl Sagan, do you know him well? Do you really know his 
witnessing truth potential? Have you talked to his workers? Has he risked his life for what he believes? Now, there's others that have risked their lives. You can find tons of people that risked their lives for a lie. But put all the evidence together. Look at what it generates in the hearts of people. And he can't totally prove the faith to you because the Lord won't allow that to happen. He's not going to give you just a totally airtight case. But he has given you a good case. He's given us as good as case as any other case that could be made. A lot better case for the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States. A lot better case. And a lot better case for the fact that Homer lived and wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. A whole lot better case than a whole lot of other things that I believe every day. 500 people at once saw him alive. So when you go to a funeral, you open up to 1 Corinthians 15 and your heart is sinking. You say, is this the end? Is this all that life has to be? And you read, no, it isn't. When you're crying all alone in your house because you lost a member of your family and your heart is full of despair, you open it up and say, is this the end? Can I really believe my loved one because they believed in Christ as home? And you read this text and the Holy Spirit nurtures your soul because it's true. It's really true. It goes on, it doesn't end there, it talks about James. It says, then he appeared to James, the Lord's brother, through the whole ministry of the Lord. James, the half-brother of Christ, was probably the leader of a bunch of brothers that thought their brother had flipped his lid. They accused Jesus of being insane, they wanted to lock him up, take him home to Capernaum and keep him safe from the crowd. And suddenly after the resurrection of the dead, James is one of the 120 in Jerusalem. He goes on and becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem, and he is, mur he is martyred by Jews because he believed that his, his half-brother rose again from the dead. Then he talks last of all, and then to the apostles, that would include a broader circle, uh, bigger than the disciples of a group that saw were eyewitnesses of Christ. And he says, last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what we believe. What is Paul saying here in closing? You know what he's saying, brothers and sisters? I'm the one that should have never been born. How many of you, as you look over your world, are saying, this one could never be saved. You see, I think one of the big problems in our church is we don't have enough vision. I think it's one of the big problems in our church, and I think it's one of the reasons we're getting, we get really bogged down in our own problems. You see, until you start to risk, until you start to reach out, as long as you're tentative, you're going to have a lot of problems. How many of you could believe that your boss who's an agnostic Jew, who rejects Christianity, plays golf every Sunday, cusses like a trooper, good worker, but totally rejects Christianity. How many of you are really asking the Lord, Lord, I believe you could save that guy? I hope a whole bunch of you are. You know what I'd like us to do? I'd like us to get the least likely to be saved list and begin to ask the Lord to do a work.
Because that's the work the Lord delights in. And when you become a part of that, it's going to blow your mind. Because that's the way the Lord works. You see, we all have the idea that the Lord works, you know, well, you know, I happen to be born in the right kind of a home, and I heard the message, and that's why I believe, but somebody else was raised in another home, they believe a little bit differently than me, and so they're not really going to come to faith, but everything will be fine. No, it won't be fine. You see, what 1 Corinthians 15 is saying is, if you have come to Christ, if you believed in this message, then you found the truth. There's authenticating witnesses. You can defend it. You can believe it. You can share it. It's true. There's eyewitnesses who will go to court on your behalf and say that it's true. And what Paul is telling you in closing is that this Savior that died delights in saving the least likely. The least likely is the one that he expects many times that he'll save. And you know what he said? He said, I should have never been born again because I persecuted the church. And to show you how messed up people can get, here was this religious guy devoted his whole life to butchering Christians because he thought they, were the, they thought they were heretical, thought they were anti-gods. So he threw him in prison. Then God from heaven appeared to him, Jesus appeared to him, and said, Paul, you're persecuting me. You're hurting me. It shows you how confused and botched up we can get. Here's a man in all sincerity who's wiping people out because he thinks they're the enemies of God and he finds out they're not the enemies of God. They're the servants of God. And Paul never got over how terrible it was that he'd persecuted the church. But what he never got over was God's grace. You see, this is what I want us to get a hold of. I want myself to get a hold of it. I want you to get a hold of it. You know, Paul doesn't say, I received Christ and I persecuted the church, I was such a bad person, and now I'm going to spend the rest of my life working hard to try to make up for all the people that I murdered. You see, that's the way a lot of you work for Christ. You're trying to earn His favor. Just like I told my church family here in Midlothian, you will never, never, never be able to earn one second of God's favor. And that is the big dividing line between all the religions in the world that, that have all different kinds of methods and all different kinds of ways for you to get right with God and the way of the cross and the way of the resurrection. The New Testament reveals a message and the Old Testament led up to that message that we are saved by grace. It is a totally free gift of God and it is an affront to the goodness of God to suggest that you can pay God any amount in order to earn that favor. I pray that you'll think deeply about what 1 Corinthians 15 is saying about the sufficiency of what Christ did for you in paying for your sins on Calvary and the fact that there are many eyewitnesses in the first century who are willing to give their life for the fact that Jesus Christ actually did leave the grave clothes behind. He came back to life, and he wants to come to life in your life. He wants to change your life. He wants to give you a new spiritual life. And if you're trapped in a religious system that is challenging you to be obedient, to fulfill various criterion, different spiritual rules or moral rules or certain performance standards and how many times you go to church or how many verses you memorize or what liturgies you read or how many sacraments you go through. I want to challenge you 
to look at what the New Testament itself says about how a person can be sure that you're right with God. You can never earn it. You can never be good enough. But you can simply open your heart to receive it. Why don't you do that right now? Will you pray with me? All you need to do is bow your head right there. Maybe you're driving your car. Why don't you pull it to the side or maybe just stop washing the dishes or stop banging on that word processor. And will you say, Dear Lord Jesus, just pray with me like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know deep in my soul that I've sinned, that there's immoral thoughts, that there are violent thoughts, that there are prideful thoughts. I know that I haven't obeyed your commandments in my thought life. I know that I've disobeyed many of them in my action life. Lord, I want you to forgive me. I want you to forgive me based upon what I've learned today, that Jesus died in my place. I want you to know that I believe that Jesus rose again. Will you confirm that faith? Will you confess that faith? Jesus, I believe you rose again from the dead. Because you're alive, come into my life. Come and dwell in my life right now. If you prayed that prayer with me and you meant it, based upon the promise of Jesus, you became a child of God.